that's it. That's MotoGP for 2021. And that's it for Valentino Rossi on two wheels. His last race is done, but there's a new guard already in place. Sure, Valentino's last victory was way back in June 2017, and he got close to some other victories, but didn't quite make it stick to the top step. But it's now in the hands, MotoGP, that is, of the Quattararos and the Banyayas of this world to carry the sport forward for another five to ten years or so. This is Toby Moody with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi. And as always, I'm going to start our podcasts with what are your first thoughts from Valencia 2021? I'm going to go for Simon first. The MotoGP paddock's fear of Ducati dominance in 2022 is a little bit overblown. Interesting. And we're going to catch up on that thought later in this podcast. Valentin, what are your first thoughts from Valencia 21? The MotoGP paddock's fear of Ducati dominance in 2022 is a little bit overblown, but man, is that Ducati a good bike. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, for me, little bits of half of my life has moved on. I just had that feeling for about half a minute. I'm not going to gush about it, but it was a little bit of my 20s and my 30s moving on as I am closer to 50 now <laughs> than 23 that I was when I came in the paddock. But we'll touch on that in a minute. Um, in fact, why don't we do it now? Valentina had a great line after yesterday's race. He said... I was a rider right to the very end. I was inside the top 10 of the world's best riders today. That made me smile. Um, He's been very humble about it all, hasn't he, Simon? He's been very not look at me. And not just this weekend. It's only when you think about it all the way through his career. He's been very, very humble about it this weekend, despite the best intentions of some others. Um, he tried to go out in his own terms. He tried to go out as a racer that enjoyed racing motorbikes and tried to have fun until the very, very end. Um, there is no doubt that he had fun until the very, very end. He had his best race of the season as his last race. He had Franco Morbidelli, his, his number one protege, the first person in the VR46 Academy, who got behind him. Admitted that he didn't really want to be there because he didn't want to, you know, be near Valentino on track just in case. And then decided that he would overtake him and then found out he couldn't overtake him. He said he was unattackable was the word that Franco used to describe him. <laughs> he says that he was just, he was, it was Valentino of old, you know, riding the best race he's ridden all year. And uh, there's something very Valentino about that. Um, there's also something very Valentino about the on-track celebration at the end of the race, which was just stopping with everyone and giving them a big hug. There was no theatrics. There was no showboating. There was no giant dancing animated devils at the side of the circuit. There was just, just you know, him saying goodbye to his mates. And I thought that was quite, it was a lot more plain and simple than I expected after some of the theatrics that have been organized by MotoGP in the days leading up to that. And uh, I think it was a really nice way to bow out. It was very Valentino. The word humble came up a bunch just now, and I I just don't know if we can really use the word humble when describing a farewell in which the, the retiring writer referred to himself as an icon. 
which, you know, obviously very much his right to do so. He's absolutely earned that moniker, but it's just, it's just Valentino Rossi being realistic about his impact on, on MotoGP. But it's not, it's not exactly humble, if you see what I mean. Yeah, in terms of the, the performance and the farewell, uh, it was a decent ride. It was his, I think, fourth top 10 of the season. But, of course, it was still enabled by Alex Rins crashing out and Takanakagami crashing out while right behind him. So, I don't think... I don't think the pace was like anything extraordinary. I don't think that he, even if this was the level of performance he could maintain through 2022, I don't think it suddenly made it so that it would make a lot sense, a lot more sense for him to to stick around for another season. Just a really pretty nice final hurrah. Obviously, as you said, riding with with Frankie right next to him, watching Pecco win the race, but the result was always going to be secondary. Honestly, for much of the season, it's felt that the results have been have been secondary and the just the process of getting a proper farewell with the crowds has been the main thing. I, I think if we're going to use the word humble to describe anything that happened on Sunday, it's probably uh, the other big farewell from the MotoGP grid. It's Danilo Petrucci and I, he bowed out um, because I actually felt really, really sorry for Danilo in the end because I think he was completely overshadowed by all of the Rossi hype. Um and the paddock is losing another real character in him. If if he was as talented on a motorbike as Valentino Rossi, he would be a superstar of the level of Valentino Rossi because he's such a good guy, such a funny character off the bike. Um, and yeah, that that was kind of his boy out was very humble. Um, even if he did admit after the race that he cried on the grid, cried during the race and cried after the race bless him he's a, a lovely lovely guy but you know it's funny that you you say the thing about talent because i remember a couple of weeks ago i asked danilo uh given his reputation as being this sort of lovely super nice guy who everybody in MotoGP likes who everybody finds very affable I mean, he's obviously had conflicts of his own during his career in MotoGP because every rider has had those conflicts but he's he's universally liked and and very earnest and very frank and i and i asked him whether what he thinks of the the stigma maybe that a top level motorsport competitor a top level rider can't really be nice that they have to be ruthless that they have to be a bit you know a bit with a mean streak i guess maybe it's maybe fabio disproves that a little right now but anyway i asked danilo and what danilo said was that he feels he's been loved, always loved in MotoGP, but not always respected. It's a very, very nice way of putting that. Now, it, it just makes me wonder, how would it be if, if Danilo Petrucci really was like one of the MotoGP aliens and not just a pretty good MotoGP rider? Like, if he really was as all-conquering and dominant as Valentino Rossi, what, what would he be like then? What his character would be like then? He, uh, he admitted yesterday afterwards that he almost missed the start of the race. Because he did the sight and lap. Then he went back to the garage to go to the toilet. And there were so many people in pit lane waiting to congratulate him as he walked to the grid that he almost didn't make the cutoff. <laughs> which is which is just the most Danilo <laughs> Petrucci story imaginable. Um, but you're completely right. You know, it, it is something that we have to, you have to frame it, really. Valentino Rossi is a ruthless guy. and And he is loved by millions of people. But he's also, you know, he's hated by quite a few of his rivals. And that has taken nothing away from him because it has created 
as much as he is a natural showman and as much as he's incredibly talented, that ruthless streak is a huge contributing factor to the fact, you know, to what made him what he is. And they're all the same because he could be as, you know, it would have been easy for him to be that ruthless and to just look mean. But the fact that he was that ruthless against people like Casey Stoner and Jorge Lorenzo and Max Biaggi, who were just as mean back to him, is what created this amazing storyline that we've all, you know, that we've all loved for the last 26 years. You've got to be ruthless to ride a bike quickly. You've got to be ruthless to ride it and win at national level. You've got to be ruthless to then get into the... You've got to win a race. You've got to win a championship. You've got to do it year after year after year. You've got to not give up when it bloody hurts mentally and physically. You break your leg at Mugello 2010. You're hobbling around at Saxonring a couple of weeks later and you win a Grand Prix at Malaysia before the year is out. That was 2010 for him. Um, you've got to out Fox Biaggi, which with hindsight was quite easy. And the same for Sete, the same for, for Kate. With hindsight, it was... Well, the the Laguna thing was, oh, well, that's racing, Casey. What do you expect me to do about it? You know, Sete at, at, at Jerez in 05. Well, you know, Sete left the door open and Valentino was going to put it there. Mamola's words will never leave my mind. If you leave a gap, it'll park it. And it doesn't matter how slow they went around the last corner, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the humility he had, you know, has been uh, has been part of the annoying thing for his t- for the, for his rivals, isn't it? You know, you want to see them having a real fight, but actually they just humour them in Park Ferme at Jerez 05, and Sete is trying to be all bullfighter and all swaggery shoulder, and and all that Uccio and Brivio did was just laugh at him. I mean, I mean, it was very degrading, but. It worked because Sete never won another race after Qatar 04. You know, that's what he said on that night. I couldn't believe it when he said it. I thought he was wrong. He will never win another race, said Valentino. He said it on Italian TV. My God, he was right. Um, How do you know the future, Valentino? Um, But, uh, yeah, coming back to Petrucci, he did a great line in his debrief last night, wasn't it? You know, yes, thanks, blah, blah, blah. But I know that on two days of my life, I was the best motorcycle racer in the world. The Mugello victory and the Le Mans victory last year. That Mugello victory in Parc Ferme, the celebrations, the tears. I love that. I love that part of sport. Fantastic. We'll miss him. We, him and I did a, we had a sit down on Thursday. We did a one-on-one interview and he was superb. Um, It'll be on the site over winter. And uh, he was telling me in it that, um, he he's really unhappy with the Mugello victory because it was his first win and it was at home and it was an Italian bike after an amazing race. He says he barely remembers the day because it was just so dramatic, so intense. He said he too would, much too early. He would much rather have had his first win in Le Mans so that he'd got the first win thing out of the way and then had the chance to go to Mugello and do what he did. He says that 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 is not a regret, but it's something that he'll always think about, like how much better would the day have been if I'd had the chance to... Well, and there was, of course, the the thing at Mugello with uh, with uh, Andrea Dovizioso and the fact that Dovi was uh, sort of not very happy with Petrucci's tactics and the fact that he was the de facto number one at Ducati. So there was this whole cloud hanging over the win a little bit, I guess. And I think Petrux was a little bit taken aback by how 
how Dovi reacted and by the fact that Dovi wasn't entirely happy. But he also was sort of aware that he'd been quite aggressive. Yeah, but every Italian who's in second and third position on the Mugello podium is going to feel hard done by. There's only one race you want to win, isn't there? And, you know, Dovi never quite did it on a big bike. So, yeah, you know, he's, he, uh, history will remember the tears and the celebration and a red bike wins. Oh, that was, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, we will touch on Valentino for an entire podcast as the winter progresses. As Simon said, he's got other stuff from other riders in the paddock that we will put onto the website as the off season gets going. Um, but, you know, I put some pictures up on the internet over the weekend of me when I was 23 with Valentina Rossi in an Imola garage in 1996 and such like. And I don't know, I can give you some insight as to why those pictures happened. They weren't just me standing there and having a selfie, which, by the way, I hate. But sometimes you've got to take the picture and you can look back on it. I was lucky enough to commentate on 106 of his 115 Grand Prix victories and all of his world championships. So luck is the the main word in that sentence. Just happened to be there as a bloke from Worcestershire in Char Alarm in 1996. But what we've got to remember is things like 2002 for Rossi, 16 races. He won 11 of those 16, including seven on the trot. And it would have been more were it not for a rare mechanical failure that he had at Bruno. He won the championship in 0-2 by 140 points. And in those days, there were just 16 races rather than the great glut that we're going to have next year. As for the celebrations, Simon, you touched on them and the celebrations for, for Valentino at the end of Valencia yesterday. I was a little bit, was that it? Was that it? I know that Dorna did the nine bikes in the unit with the open front on Thursday, which was very good. I just thought that Simon Crafar could have interviewed him, at least bring him to a place. You know, a lot of people went to Valencia from far and wide in difficult situations still in, in mainland Europe or in the world, full stop. We didn't really hear from him. We didn't get some last words. We didn't get Something for the fans, something for the fans. And I thought that was a bit flat. I mean, coming down pit lane, Suzuki did the best send-off with a banner over his head. And Suzuki, well, he never put his leg over a Suzuki. TV stations had to wait 30 minutes or more to get him. I just thought it could have been a little bit better. I think what we saw was a celebration that was all about Valentino Rossi. And that is why I think he was celebrating personally with his people yesterday. And maybe for the first time in his entire career, that meant that the, the, the great paying public came second. Because when you see the scenes of afterwards, the madcap, you know, party atmosphere in, in not just the, the, uh, the factory Yamaha, or the Petronas Yamaha garage, but the factory Yamaha garage, there was people from all over the paddock in there. Um, you know, it, it it was chaos afterwards. And I think that is, that was Valentino wanting to be, like I say, to be with his people. Um, and, and as for the Suzuki thing, yeah, he's never thrown his leg over a Suzuki, but that is a team built by Abrevio. 
let's not forget. Yeah, yeah, I, I get so why. There's, I get there's why. A, but, there's a there's yeah. a huge personal connection there. But um, yeah, I, I genuinely I think that was just yesterday. Like I say, for for maybe the first time ever, the public took second place to Valentino, doing what Valentino wanted to do with everyone, with everyone around him, which is which well, is something he has earned. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just. I see what you're saying. I think there could have been a just a little bit of a word with Simon Crayfire in pit lane so that we could all hear his his voice and then it's it's all kind of put to bed. But, you are, uh, of course, assuming he still had a voice at that point. Well, quite. Well, <laughs> it, we are recording this on Monday morning after the race and I would be very disappointed if they've even left the restaurant or the nightclub yet. <laughs> when, he, when he won that uh, championship in Mategi, 08, piano celebration back straight behind the um behind the paddock um i saw a few of the mechanics at the airport the next day and they come straight from the restaurant straight from the restaurant <laughs> and uh and they said that the restaurant owner was sweeping the bottles out of the restaurant tiled floor and it was an inch deep in alcohol <laughs> It, he said, I dread to know what the bill was. I dread to know. We all were soaked. Everybody just put their clothes in the bin and started again and went straight to the airport. Even And then I think we bumped into Alex Briggs and even he said it was out of control, utterly out of control. So when an Aussie I rather fancy out of control. <laughs> yeah, so I rather fancy that last night would have been another out of control one, but uh, but there we go, there we go. At the forefront of the Grand Prix, we had Francesco Bagnaia, Paco Bagnaia, winning ahead of Jorge Martin and Jack Miller, a Ducati 1-2-3, first time that's ever happened in MotoGP for the Bologna factory. Um, they just picked up and ran away with it and try as Suzuki could to try and keep up, they couldn't do it. How can Ducati be that good at a track that's that twisty? Have they proven that they've now got no weaknesses left? Well, th there is this conception that Valencia is not a Ducati track, which I I hadn't realised really how completely inaccurate that was until after the race. Um, we were talking after the press conference... Um, Jack went to pick up his trophy and was warning Paco, be careful, these trophies are quite fragile. They're really easy to break. I've got two broken ones at home and I think I've just cracked this one. And it was at that point I realized Jack Miller has been a podium finisher at Valencia three years in a row. It's, it's not necessarily not a Ducati circuit. It is perhaps not a circuit that suits the Ducati riders that they have had on the bike. But I, I think that, that, you know, I still I'm very much of the belief that there is no circuit that doesn't sit any bike anymore. Um, and I, I think, yeah, maybe the problem is not that the bike doesn't work there. It's just that the riders on it haven't managed to get the best out of it, which, let's be honest, in 2020, we saw an Andrea Vizioso who could not get the best out of that bike on a regular basis. It was the others that were outperforming him. So, um, I yeah, I genuinely, I think the new guard have learned how to ride the Ducati differently. Obviously, the bike has got better. There's no question in that. The bike is better now. But um, I think yesterday was a, was a display of the abilities of their trio of front runners more than anything else. 
I agree in the sense that I think the whole Ducati track, Honda track thing is a bit of a bit of a thing in the past and in the in the last couple of years because obviously when you look at the Red Bull ring with its massive straights and how well the Suzuki goes there, I mean that doesn't really doesn't really make a ton of sense when we think of the stereotypical pictures of those bikes. So it's it's all about it's all a lot more marginal clearly now every bike is is a lot more of an all-rounder than it used to be and and yet still still i think we can talk about a, a particular ducati strong point that shows up at basically every track in a sense because every track has straights and it's very very clear to the naked eye that the ducatis are hard to pass that they're they have serious straight line speed grunt it doesn't make them invincible but it makes it gives them it gives them a clear edge and the way this this sets up 2022 is I feel, um, yeah, sure, Ducati's not going to be dive-bombing and hi- hugging the apex the way a, a Suzuki is, right? But if every every track is sort of a lot more homogenous than it used to be, if tracks don't, if track characteristics don't make as much of a difference as they used to be, I guess, as they, as they used to, then, um, then it's, you get... 20 times of more or less the same thing per season don't you I mean, you get more 20 times the same picture playing out and if you look at that in 2022 the last few races really the second half of the season we've seen that the ducatis are over and over again able to with different riders uh show up at the at the front row and obviously able to win races and score a lot of points and they've won the team's championship and the constructors championship that's what I think is the the bigger argument more than anything. It's not how good they were at, at Valencia specifically. It's just it's just how good they are. So coming back to the top of the podcast with you two guys, how dangerous are they for twenty twenty two? Well, the the thing is, we are at the end of the season. There has never been an off season where no one has not developed their bikes. Things are going to change for next year. The bikes that we see in four days' time when I arrive at Hareth will not be the bikes that were raced on Sunday. People will make improvements. People will make changes. We have already seen a Honda that looks radically different that will make its second appearance this week. We have heard rumors for months that the new Suzuki is something really special. Uh, Fabio Quartararo told us yesterday that he has spent the entire year telling Yamaha the one thing that they need to fix, they need a stronger engine. So they have had to, you know, they must have listened to him at least in some regards. So I, I think what we're seeing is very much the culmination of a year, of two years where development has been a bit weird because of COVID, where the Japanese factories have suffered more because of COVID than the European factories, because they've been in total shutdown, whereas the Europeans have still been able to work. And they've been able to take things to their test team who are based in the factory, not on the other side of the world. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier for Ducati to go to Mizano with Michele Piro, who lives in Forley, than it is for Yamaha to get a bike to Aragon for Cal Crutchlow. It, it, it's just, more, you know, it's just simpler. So I, I think the the real question for me is how much it has allowed the European teams to close what was traditionally a disadvantage over the Japanese teams because of experience, how they manage the fact that they've closed that gap 
and who takes the biggest dis- the biggest advantage from it. My gut feeling is actually that it won't be Ducati. It looks like it might it might actually be Aprilia who've managed to utilize that time the most effectively because they've went from being back of the grid to a podium finishing bike this year, whereas Ducati have went from being championship runners up to being championship runners up with four different riders instead of one. So um so yeah, I, I, I genuinely I think things will change next year. And you know, at the end of the day, let's not forget twelve months ago serious MotoGP journalists said Franco Mor- Morbidelli was going to win the 2021 World Championship because of the way he finished the season. Finished 17th this year. Exactly. By hook or by crook. That's the way that it has uh, has crumbled out. Um, the other factor, as you say, on the other, the other side of the world for the Japanese, you know, the Japanese have been unable to come to races. And when they do, they maybe have stayed over for longer in Europe than return to Japan. And that face to face water cooler meeting, having a coffee with somebody in the factory has dissipated. And there are less of those bump into meetings, as I like to call them in factories. It's all a factor. The fact that the world has been squeezed. People inside Suzuki say that the single biggest reason that they've suffered without Davide Brivio is not because they don't have Davide Brivio. It's because Sunichi Sahara has been trapped in Europe at every race and not been back in the factory race department. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Just finishing off the Ducati thing. uh, Now that Valentino Rossi is a free hand, is uh, is there a possibility... (laughs) He could test his brother's Ducati and see what it's like. That's what some of the Italians were saying. I mean, why wouldn't you? Is it going to snow tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you? You know, um, if he can. The the thing is, um, just to put a pin in one bubble, I don't think he'll ever race it. Of course not. Of course, I get that. I get that. Testing, yes. Wild cards, I can't see. No, it. no, 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 no. Um, but. Um, you know, you, you would, wouldn't you? you? You'd sneak a lap on it. <laughs> Curiosity killed the cat. Yeah, exactly. Put your brother's helmet you? on, leathers, who would know? <laughs> well, the, he is lucky in that his brother is the only rider in MotoGP who could pass for him visually because they're the same bloody height. Yeah, yeah. Um, did If th- we ever see Luca Marini riding down pit lane pulling his leathers out of his crotch, we know that there's something up, right? <laughs> Valentina would have to remember not <laughs> to, uh, to 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 pull the leathers out of his backside. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, comment you made about Quattararo and the the lack of top end, the lack of that top speed. Well, everybody's got the lack of top speed when you compare yourselves to a Ducati and you're coming on the home straight of the Mugello or a Catalonia or a Valencia. Um, did he just lose a? bit of momentum once he'd won the championship had he just got the the shoulders gone down a bit do you think so Valentin I think he lost a bit of momentum well before he he clinched the championship I don't think the championship status had all all that much to do with it and obviously he probably did amend his strategy a bit and maybe take it a little more cautiously in 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 some instances He, he spoke about so but I think the best indicator we have is we haven't seen Fabio in a MotoGP poll for uh, for a little while, and we know how much Fabio Quartararo likes to to do the best possible single lap. Often that seems to be his absolute favorite part of a of being a MotoGP rider, and he's not been able to do that for a while because of how how good the Ducatis have been. I think he pushed pretty hard in in Portimao. I think he pushed 
really hard for the Valencia weekend is just that. Well, you know, he started on Friday. He started. He was looking like a Q1 rider, and then they took they took an obvious step forward to Saturday, but it still wasn't enough for him to to get much done in in qualifying. And then honestly, he had a pretty good race that seemed pretty flat out. He caught up to John Mir towards the end, would have passed him. Would have been a decent fourth place salvage job. The only problem is that the the Ducatis were five seconds ahead. So I don't I don't think it's any sort of title hangover or anything like that. I think if it was, then Fabio would be sounding less worried now than he he does sound about about the Ducati threat. But that also reminds me that this this morning, about tonight, had a dream about Fabio Quartararo pulling over in the final race of the season to just celebrate his his title again. <laughs> for for anyone who's questioning if the MotoGP season is too long, that's probably an example right there that it might be touching on it. Yeah, and um, I agree with you, Simon. It's it is too long, and unfortunately, it's gonna get longer. And that's I disagree with that. I think less is more. I think uh, keep it keep it high. But unfortunately, it's a business for Dorna, and every time there's a race, there's another load of million euros going in the bank. Um, I don't think. Val that Quattararo quite kind of dipped mid-season. You know, he did win Silverstone and he did have a couple of places, second places at Mizano 1, uh, Circuit of the Americas, and that fourth position at Mizano 2 might not sound like much, but he was nowhere at the beginning of that race. He did fight hard. What we will discover with Quattararo, obvious statement of the podcast coming up, is whether or not he's a one-championship wonder who done it, that's my life, or this is the beginning of something else. Is he a Schwantz? Is he a Gardner? Is he a Hayden? Is he a Mir? Because I put Mir in that box, that he's a one championship person. Or is he, right, I'm now going to get on a roll like a, a, a Marquez, a Lorenzo, and of course a Valentino. Um, let's see. Let's see. We just don't know the answer to that question. I'd be super surprised if uh if Quartararo or Mir for that matter don't don't win more MotoGP titles going forward because they're just so young and I, I I don't think modern MotoGP really lends itself particularly well to those runs of titles like Rossi's or Dewan's unless you're an absolute alien freak like Mark because I mean just look at Miguel Oliveira for an example this year he's a backmarker at the start of the season he's a backmarker at the end of the season but four races in between he's the top rider in MotoGP scores the most points, points. yeah and that's just not a normal progression that that doesn't happen in most series so that's why because of that oscillation I think we're, we're definitely we're definitely going to see more titles from Quartararo and Mir also because they're so young you know I just turned 28 <laughs> and they're so young and you're saying that. What am I saying? <laughs> um, how good is uh, is Jorge Martin? Uh, up all night, talking to God on the big white telephone, sick as a parrot. Uh, hadn't eaten anything since Saturday lunchtime. Uh, goodness only knows what the Clinica Mobile stuffed him with tablets and energy drinks on a Sunday morning. But I thought he was going to win the race. I kind of wanted him to win the race. Um... He just gets better and better. I think he is such a star, such a star. And if there's a head-to-head in the next couple of years for a championship with, say, Martin and Banyaya, I think Martin would win it. What do you think? Um, I mean, it was a 
it was a fantastic ride knowing about the the vomiting situation obviously but even if you look at it without the knowledge that he'd been unwell that he hadn't slept all nights and that you know he couldn't hold any food down basically um it was really really good and it was it was it came at the right time because i think martin's rookie season has been exemplary but also it's not been maybe the kind of consistent breakout season that fabio's had because there there have been various small interruptions obviously the big interruption of the of the portimao injury and then there's been things like he's had he's had a leg bump as he described it which sort of hindered his race pace at certain points and it, it took him a while to return to full fitness obviously after the portimao thing and obviously also had a couple of crashes and yet when i think about it when i when i look at a season the only time where he really looked like a like a rookie was I think Qatar won. Qatar won, he qualified well and he slumped down to fifteenth. Then Qatar two, obviously, he gets on, on pole position, he gets on the podium. Then at Portimao he gets he gets hurt. But as soon as he was back from Portimao, he felt like he made himself an ever present part of the the MotoGP front running clique. It felt like it was Never anymore a surprise where Jorge Martin was up top, and in in in, in that sense, I don't think what what more he could be doing to uh, stake a claim to a a factory ride as soon as twenty twenty three, and also just it's it's just a very impressive rookie season because as the Ducati riders, the established riders Miller and Banyaya said, that bike is not necessarily the easiest for rookies to learn. Still, even even despite all the improvements. So the fact that he's basically transformed himself into a front runner just like that, or is it taken Banyaya like the better part of three seasons speaks volumes. Uh, genuinely, I, I don't think he's actually been fully fit this season. I think he hasn't actually been fully fit since Portimao. I think what we've seen in the second half of the season has been all the more remarkable for the fact that he is still carrying injuries from then. Uh, like his post-race plans for for his post-test plans for next week is more surgery. He still has things that need fixing from that crash. The guy broke eight bones. He admitted on uh, you know the Sunday or on the Thursday before Portimao that he was he was terrified. He said he was he was scared of going back to that track because it was the biggest crash of his life. Um, and I think it's it's one of those ones like uh, let's not forget uh, Mir did the exact same thing in his rookie season. He had a huge crash caused by a mechanical problem in testing in Bruneau where the bike ended up in the forest. And then he came back and everyone thought he was fully fit and he was never really shining again. And then the next season he won the championship. It, it was because he was still carrying those injuries. And I think that where Jorge Martin's limit is, we have no idea. It is so far beyond what we've seen this year. Um, I'm, 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 you know, we, we've said for a while, that that guy was the next big thing. He, for me, the thing that identifies riders more than anything else in the junior classes who are going to make it is their ability to consistently dominate qualifying even more than races. Because especially in Moto3, where the mayhem of Moto3 kind of hides true talent sometimes in races, he was Mr. Qualifying there. The next guy who came and did something similar was Raul Fernandez. And I think we all know where he's going to end up eventually too. It, it's with his name on that big silver trophy at some point. Um, and yeah, 
Martin, I am so excited to see him next year fully fit and on a, you know, probably on a slightly better package as well, because you would imagine that the technical support that went Johan Zarco's way at the start of this season will go Martin's way from the off next year. We've touched on Valentina Rossi putting in a top 10 results. And as Valent Simon said, his best result of the year, full stop, because it was a dry race and a dry track. What about his teammates, Andrea De Vizioso? He put in a better result as well on his return to MotoGP towards the back end of this 2021 season. He's had a few races now. Or was it just a better weekend for the now outgoing Patronus Yamaha team? Well, he and Rossi are on quite different bikes, so I don't, I don't think it's like a team-wide thing. I don't think the... The Patronus overall form has much to do with it. But if, if I remember correctly, that very bike was quite handy at Valencia last season. So that makes sense. But also, obviously, Delvi is becoming more and more comfortable with it. The thing about it, and the, sort of Delvi is in the same situation as, as Maverick Vinales here, is that they're treating these, these races as a, basically a huge extension to the 2022 preseason. Obviously, once it's lights out on Sunday or in qualifying Saturday, they they do their best to get the best results. But their weekends aren't really built towards getting the best result like they are for the more full-time 2021 MotoGP riders, if that makes any sense. Their priority is to make themselves as, as comfortable as possible on the bike and to set up themselves for the future rather than for, for now. The, the comparison I see with Dovi and with Vinales uh, is Stefan Bradl in 2020, um, where he spent the entire season deputizing for Mark Marquez, where he spent the entire season running like 15th, 16th, while devoting things to testing all weekend and, and trying new parts and whatever. Then we got to the final race of the year. Honda let him do what he wanted to do and not test, and suddenly he was fighting for the top six. I, I see an element of that in what we're seeing from both of those two. I think we're exactly like you say, Val, they're not riding to race at the minute. They're riding to learn and to develop. And you know, let's see what happens first race next year. Alex Rins, sun comes up in the morning. Alex Rins does well, puts it in the gravel. Harsh or fair or both? Uh, both, I think. But honestly... I don't think I have much capacity to get too worked up about this particular Alex Rins retirement, probably because he's used up all the capacity, but um, also because it doesn't really tell us anything beyond the, the one very specific thing about Alex Rins is that he's still, the errors are still creeping in because it seems like he's trying too hard to keep up with bikes who had something extra. Uh Obviously, this time he was chasing the. He had overtaken Mir and he was chasing the, the three Ducatis that clearly had more pace in the pockets. And it was it was a lose lose situation. And the way he lost was was to drop it in the gravel again. But then again, the way John Mir lost was bringing home a fourth place finish uh, five seconds off, which it's a good effort. Obviously, he's done better than Rins. But the value to Suzuki at this point in time is probably the same. Ultimately, they just need a better bike. They just need a package that's more competitive compared to the to the Ducatis and and to the Yamahas. I would say uh, we've we've not seen the 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 title defense that obviously we would have wanted to see. 
Um, and I think for Rins, what it what it should tell him is that there's still this weakness. I think he's taken it a little bit more conservatively in the second half of the season, but now he's fallen off again while trying to push potentially beyond the bike's pace, which also seems to be his explanation. I think as long as... If the 2022 Suzuki really is as good as some of the suggestions say, then obviously at that point, Rins will have to apply this lesson and, and start riding more within himself and not make these mistakes while chasing after a result and settling for results like maybe Mir sometimes does. But, and yeah, of course, if he keeps doing it, then he'll, he'll be under pressure, yeah. I, I genuinely think that out of those two, I think Alex Rins might be faster, at least sometimes, but he's just so much worse at managing situations. And, and Mir is... Mir is strategically smart. He sees the bigger picture. He controls. He manages. He knows when to push. He knows when he doesn't. And Alex just doesn't quite have that that same skill. Um, but that means that that Alex is probably still your best chance of winning races, even if Mir is your best chance of winning titles. Um, and unfortunately, he's just had a bike at the minute where he he hasn't been able to manage the situations very well because it's not good enough. No Mark Marquez on the track over the weekend. We heard before the Grand Prix on the Tuesday, he missed Portomayo and then he missed Valencia. How bad is this eye-nerve optical injury? Because he's not done the last two Grand Prix. He's not doing the Jerez test later this week. That's worrying for a second injury to your optic nerve. What have you heard? So the, the damage isn't to the nerve which is the good news, the damage is to the muscle that actually moves the eye. And it's Forgive and me. it's it's repairable. They've repaired it before on Mark and they know exactly how to repair it. The thing is, they're just being super, super cautious about how long he takes to recover from it. Um, it is probably, it's a worry that it's an issue again. It's a worry. That, it's always a, a worry when an injury you thought had healed recurs. But at the same time, this is someone that has crashed his brains out for the past 10 years and it's taken 10 years for it to recur, which is probably a good sign for Honda. Um, yeah, I I think they, they will just be playing a cautious right now because it's one of those things that you just can't mess up, is it? You have to be careful with eyesight. You have to be careful with it. Everything else you can, you can find a way around, but that ain't one of them. So um, I think an abundance you only of get caution. Two of them. Exactly. An abundance of caution is all we're seeing there. And let's be completely honest. Mark Marquez without a preseason testing program and just jumping on the bike for the first time in Qatar has worked out pretty well at least twice in the past. So no one's going to be losing too much sleep over it. Yeah, but Simon, and I agree with you, but it's the direction of the bike that you for one have been saying is going in the wrong direction in 2021 season that we've just seen. See how other people have not been able ah. to ride it. At least everybody can ride a Ducati. But, but, and this is the key thing for Honda, the bike is going in the wrong direction for everyone else. But same thing. I've said, you've said it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ducati, they, everybody yes, can ride it. Yeah, but Honda don't care if no one else can ride the bike as long as Mark Marquez is fully fit and able to ride it. That's all. Well, they're they going to have to care now. Well, not if he makes a return in time for the start of the season and everything's all well and good. 
because the guy but has just won. You know, the guy has arguably dominated the latter half of the season with an injury. Yeah, yeah, but it's eggs in one basket. That's so, the worry. So if he's yeah. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. But that's the Honda way. But they didn't that's do that. And do. I know I'm being an old git here. They didn't do that with the V5. Barros jumped on a V5 and won the bloody first race. He didn't even do testing. The first time he rode it was on the Friday yeah, morning. He didn't win the title, but he won. He won. But he didn't win the title. And then Valentino Rossi left and they yeah. kind of flicked yeah. the title with Nicky Hayden. I, I, and and you know what I mean as well. Dark you know, period. I'm, we're we're, we're, you know we're I mean? on the same you know ship I mean? here. We're on the same ship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, of course, of course. Of course, of course. Uh, but I, I think that, that Honda, for Honda to change their entire corporate ethos, if they wouldn't change it after they lost Mark for an entire season, they're not going to lose it just because they've lost him for two races in a test. Yeah, I think that for Honda, it's title or bust, and it will have looked at its lineup and decided maybe that only Mark can win that title. And so it doesn't really matter if the other riders finish 11th, 12th, 13th, whatever, because it's title or bust. And with Mark, the bike looks capable. And you know, without Mark, it's bust. But that's that's the risk. But that reminds me, uh, I'm about to pick a little bit on something Alberto Pooch said this weekend, which if I did in real life would probably end a bit badly for me. But yeah, what he said was that Mark's eye situation was delicate and that it wasn't something as simple as a, as a broken bone, which, you know, which says something about MotoGP and it implies that a, a, a broken bone is nothing serious. You know, that just, I think that that says a fair bit, just like, you know, just a piece of your skeleton broken in half. The, 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 this is the same gentleman that you're talking about, Val, who said to me, but I don't care about the sponsors. <laughs> I said, you better not say that to a journalist. I don't care. You're lucky, Toby. You got to speak to him. We don't get to do that anymore. Oh, this, <laughs> this was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I stood my ground on that one. But yeah. uh, there we go. Um, I, of course, ended up with no Repsol bike on the grid since 19... 19- Ever. Three no, ever pre Rothman's day of uh, Rothman's days pre pre Repsol day. It's the first time there's ever not been a Repsol Honda on the grid since they they joined forces in '95. We had a bit of WhatsApp back and forth briefly, Simon, didn't we? And I thought, why? I asked you, why didn't they put Bradle on the bike? And I know that we're keep they were keeping Bradle for the Jerez test. I get that, but there's no one else, is there? The, I mean, there is no. Can't they put Leon Haslam on it? Couldn't they put you know just somebody on it just to fudge it? But no, no, no. But that's the thing. But 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 Repsol, you know, this is a racetrack covered in Liquimoli and Patronus and Motul, circuit sponsor for the weekend, and Repsol. They were all twitchy about that. So, hmm, I wonder if that'll change in the future. But it goes, it goes back, it goes back to to what Val said about what's important to Honda. I think whenever you drive through Spain, which is something I spend a lot of time doing, and when you stop at Repsol fuel stations. There are always hoardings with MotoGP on it, and it's always the same three photographs. It's Mark Marquez winning on a Repsol Honda. It's Mark Marquez winning on a Repsol Suter in Moto2. And it's Nicky Hayden winning in 2006. They only care about titles. That is genuine. Danny Pedrosa, Spanish icon, beloved to millions. There's no, no posters of him up here. You could put, like, 
Christoph Ponson on the bike, and then he finished <laughs> a lap down, and he'd never never got on TV. Cause... He should have just tried. Should have just tried to buy Iker Lacona out of his KTM contract. Soon as he's going to be a Honda rider next week, anyway. Yeah, ultimately, whoever they could get, it's it's irrelevant because you can't learn a MotoGP bike in a session, and they they'd be well off the pace. If if you listen to these podcasts back, Simon, and I don't know whether or not you do, you're going to listen to those words. KTM Honda could have bought Iker Lacona out of a KTM contract. Have you got any more jokes this morning? That was kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> let's not be let's not be foolish. <laughs> Um, I reckon there's probably more chance of KTM buying Mark Marquez out of his Repsol Honda contract. Than yeah, but Red Bull of, would. Yeah. Um, just, just what was it like, was, Simon? Yeah. Let's just, just talk to you as a, as a fan. Um, what was the atmosphere like at the track? What was the whole vibe like compared with a, a another Grand Prix weekend? It's hard to tell, because. If you asked me for my one takeaway from this weekend, it's not that it was Valentino Rossi's last race. It's that we had 75,000 people on that big grandstand. Oh, it was full house. It was, the first, it was the first race with the full house in two years. And that was the takeaway. You know, you, you've been in the media center there, Toby. You know the view you get out over it. Look it out on Sunday morning, hearing a mad Spaniard with a microphone screaming abuse at the fans as a Mexican way of sweeps from turn 12 to turn two is just, it's something special. And that more than anything, you know, the paddock felt busy. Um, there were people there. There were guests there. There was celebrations. There was hugs. It, it it genuinely it felt like a pre-COVID Grand Prix just wearing masks. And that, after everything we've been through and after everything that's happened, is good. Is very, very good. Um, and good to go into a winter with. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, to bring it back to him, the the only race this year that Valentino Rossi would have wanted to have bowed out at. Can you imagine Sunday with yeah. an empty grandstand? It would have been horrid yeah. for him. So or a half baked one, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Mizano. Like a Mizano. Yeah. yeah, no, it it felt like a Grand Prix race, and that that more than anything is my takeaway from the weekend about how good it was to have a normal race again. Okay, um, few little newsy points. Uh, what's the latest going on at Suzuki Team Boss structure? What's the gossip? No idea. <laughs> Uh, there you go. Is, Next subject. <laughs> it is yeah. So it's not Davide Brivio. He said he's staying in F one. Um, I have fairly good contacts inside Suzuki. Quite a few of him listen to the podcast. Um, you know who you are. Uh, they don't know what's happening because it's being the cards are being held very tight to the management's chest. The two, the one name that I've heard recently during the rounds is Johan Stigafeld. But who has told me that he has two good options for next year? I would imagine the other one involves a V and an R and a forty six, at one of their myriad of teams. Uh, let's not forget they now have three teams in MotoGP racing and Grand Prix racing between two Moto two teams, and um, so there's an option there somewhere for Stiggy. It seems, um, but I think uh, it, it was uh, so uh, Sinichi Sahara the the current team boss even though he's technically technical lead came to the team manager's press conference at the weekend and he said we won't know anything until after the f1 season so it'll be a few more weeks before we find out but genuinely no one in the paddock really knows much of what's going on there at the minute 
Okay, okay. You touched on the fact that there is another 46 team. Uh, there was the announcement that the VR46 Riders Academy are going to have a Moto2 team in conjunction with Yamaha. So they're, they're getting on the ladder of talent because KTM, Red Bull, should I say, have uh, uh, got that ladder of talent going. You've mentioned Fernandez already. We'll come back to him in a minute. Uh, that's how Binder and Oliveira are in the big team. So that's, that, was, that was good to read. That was good to read that, that Yamaha are, are doing that because Honda go play catch up. Absolutely. And it sounds like they've... Um, so obviously one of the names is a, is a big talent out of Southeast Asia, uh, Kenneth Kubo, who's been doing really well. Ty Ryder, who's been doing really well for them in the Spanish Championship. And the other name is, by all accounts, uh, one of the maybe one of the next big Spanish properties who's kind of missed the tr traditional career ladder. Uh, a kid called Manuel Gonzalez, who was a Red Bull rookie at 13, who had some <clears throat> drama in Red Bull rookies that saw him getting kicked out uh, and then ended up going the World Supersport path, but is, by all accounts, you know, is, is by reputation, is a big star. Um, so it's good to see him getting a chance to come back into the into the Grand Prix paddock as well. You know, Simon, just hearing you say the next big Spanish star, just, I mean, wow, how, how many do they have coming up? It's an absolutely crazy amount. I mean, what is it? Canet, uh, Acosta, Garcia, Fernandez, Fernandez, Fernandez. Uh, just, a, just an absolutely, absolutely crazy. We... We had the uh, the first ever mini GP grand final at the weekend at Valencia. Dorna's new mini yeah. bike series that, that has run individual championships all over the world and then brought all of these top guys together to Valencia for one grand final this weekend. And it is like they're doing Dorna are doing amazing work with it. It is very much the the the, the lowest step in the path that needed to be added in. Um but from from a few off the record sources, they were really, really, really unhappy that one, two, three in it were Spanish. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. You see, you but I mean, it's fine. Like I, I'm somebody who doesn't really care about the, the nationality aspect of it. It's just, how are we going to find all of these really yeah. good upcoming guys places yeah. on the, on the limited MotoGP grid? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, from a business point of view, which is where I look yeah. at it from, you've got to have nationalities that are yeah. different. You've got to sell the TV because the TV makes the money that gets the billboards, that gets the sponsors, that then makes the whole machine work. And then the teams get the TV money back to them because they're there. And you've got to, you can't just sell it to, to, Span, to Spanish TV. Once you've taken their money, that's it. That's it. Uh, you need an Argentine, you need a Scandinavian, you need a German, you need an Austrian, you need a Eastern European, you need a Russian Val, you need a Brit, you need an Irishman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talking about Fernandez, 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 what's going on with Raul Fernandez and his future? KTM, Yamaha, those rumors have appeared yet again. It sounds a bit of a mess. So basically, Yamaha are still doing everything they can to find some way to steal him off KTM, even though every attempt they make doesn't work. Um, it looks like they've stopped trying to poach him in the short term. Uh, it looks like they're playing a longer game and they've hired his championship winning crew chief to go and work with Darren Binder next year, which, you know, Binder's on a one year deal. And that very much to me is a statement of intent of 
there's a space for you here, Raul, if you want it after your one year in Moto Two or in Moto GP with KTM. Um, yeah, let's see what happens. But it it shows almost a desperation from Yamaha in trying to find something for the future because Fabio will not last forever because no one does. And they're they're already, you know, there's no one else in the Yamaha lineup that you think, you know, the next big thing to replace Fabio Quattararo is not 36-year-old Andrea Davizioso, is it? Not a chance. But I think the word desperation, you know, usually carries a, a negative connotation. But I think if I'm not just Yamaha, but any MotoGP brand, I'm, I'm desperate in a good way to uh, to sign Raul Fernandez. And that's also evident by, I think, something you just said, Simon. You said championship winning crew chief. But I don't think Raul Fernandez has won a championship. Oh, yeah. No, he hasn't. You're right. Yeah, yeah. so like in, in Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, yeah. And but but we all think that sort of oh. he has, or at least we all see that as a as a championship caliber performance, and that's the reason why every every brand should be desperate to get him. And ultimately, whatever Yamaha's current talent situation, if it manages to land Raúl Fernandez after the the Moto Two season that he's had, it'll be laughing all the way to the bank. Well, maybe not to the bank because I'll have to pay a lot. Well, he's on a one-year deal. They might not have to pay that much money. No, but to to Raul, not to KTM. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. To Raul, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be a very rich young man very quickly if this all plays out. Yeah, exactly. Bigger calendar I mentioned next year. Uh, There is World Superbike going to the brand-new Indonesian race circuit this weekend as a bit of a dress rehearsal for MotoGP next year. But you've got some news about Indonesia. (laughs) Yeah. So the dress rehearsal for the dress rehearsal was on Sunday, supposedly, with two rounds of the Asia Talent Cup there, which were cancelled on Sunday morning when they realised they didn't have enough marshals to staff the circuit. There is a huge amount of desperation within Dorna, within the manufacturers, within motorcycle racing to have a race in Indonesia. And it has been done in a way that could perhaps be described as slightly haphazard. Um, we've built a circuit somewhere that the circuit shouldn't have been built, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, they built a circuit. They built a circuit on an island resort that caters to Western tourists in a country that's mad about MotoGP. They should have built a circuit on the outskirts of Jakarta that seated half a million people because they'd have sold half a million tickets. I, I just sent all which they had. Well, exactly, exactly. I just I don't feel like any of this is being done with the right priorities. And that was kind of reflected at the weekend by the fact that they couldn't find enough marshals to staff an Asia Town Cup race there. Um, there's been some images have come out of World Superbikes. There's been some circuit staff who have already lost their jobs, it seems, because when the World Superbike freight arrived, they opened the crates. They cracked out Rinaldi's factory Ducati and had a good look at it and posted all the pictures of it on the internet. There... You can build a racetrack, but there's so much more to hosting a race than just having a racetrack. And it's kind of worrying that all of the other things that come with it aren't there yet. Well, that's exactly what happened with Qatar the first year we went there in October 2004. Um, and this is no slight on the locals in Qatar, but the the entire army of marshals were just scooped up from Estoril and taken to Qatar. Whole lot. There you go. One-stop shop. Turnkey operation. They just know exactly what's going on. Even to this day, the circuit director at Qatar was the previous circuit director of Jerez. There you go. There you go. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, We 
vaguely touched on the fact that it was somebody's last race in the shape of Valentino Rossi. But we then saw in our Twitter timelines last night somebody else who was standing down from his role in MotoGP, but he's going to continue in Dorna. And it's a name that many of you won't have heard of. Sergi Sendra. He's the director in the TV truck. He chooses the pictures. Right, camera one, camera two, camera three. Oh, there's a crash. Let's go to camera 12. You know, that he's the guy at the wall of televisions. And the artistic nature and the quick brain that gives you what I still think today is an exemplary sporting televisual hour of engorging on MotoGP. It's just fantastic. Um, I worked with Sergi when I worked at Dorna. Uh, he was a cameraman. He was a, a guy who was very artistic. He was a cameraman alongside uh, a few others who've gone on to other things in, in the paddock. And he ended up behind the desk. He's very creative. He brought in the... Um, what's the word for it, Simon? The camera on the tail section that always stays... A gyroscopic camera that always stays level. Where did they find it? Sailing. A, a sailing boat is never upright for very long, is it? Um, so he found that. He goes to a lot of technical forums, exhibitions, uh, TV rights shows, uh, swapping shows. There's one in uh, Monaco every year where all the the, fran all the all the all the sports come together, and. He's probably going to hand it over to Enrique. Forgive me, I've forgotten his surname. Who's a very cool customer. I've worked with him as well. We did uh, 4K together back at Silverstone 2015, I think it was. First ever uh, 4K for MotoGP. Yeah, good guy, good guy. Don't know what he's going to do in Dorna, but for me at least, he needs a mention. He's, he's also the guy that came up with the shoulder cam. And if you go and have a look back a few days on the, the race website, there's an interview with Sergi about the shoulder cam, which um, beautifully captures how he is both a creative genius and as mad as a box of frogs. Um, there's a there's a great line in the interview about using uh, about how the none of the none of the technicians believed that the area, the antenna for transmitting the shoulder cam signal would work and how the angels came to help them make it all come together, which is just pure Sergi. But speaking of, of Dorna and TV, I think another person that we uh, we need to say goodbye to as he bows out is a very good friend of mine and one of the people who has been the voice of MotoGP for the past few years, Mr. Steve Day, who is, uh, who is also stepping down this weekend. Steve is stepped into huge shoes replacing Nick Harris, um, massive shoes to fill. He stepped up to the mark. He has done an absolutely exceptional job at it. And as well as that, he has been one of my traveling companions, drinking buddies, uh, agony ants, and just an absolute all-round good bloke in the paddock. So it will not be the same without Steve in the media center next year. No, I agree with you. He's. Uh, I, I have a bit of an expression that only commentators can criticize commentators because they actually know what's needed in a commentary box. But he is very good. He's exemplary. He's always been good. He started at club racing, as I did, as a commentator, as I did. And as and a racer. Went all the way up. As we and remember as a Casey Stoner whenever he hosted the Casey Stoner press conference last week because they raced together. Yeah, he raced with Cal. Yeah. And he's he's very good. He's very good. You listen to him, um, exceptional. So 
Uh, I, I think maybe the travel has got in the way. He's got a young family at home. He's written a children's book. Fair play, something completely different from MotoGP. And Steve, uh, you've been my soundtrack for the last few years as well, because that's how I watch MotoGP with you and Matt Burton, Simon Crafar and the team there. So if you're listening, you've done a super job. Fair play and well done and have a good time at home. Okay, well, uh, as I said at the top of the broadcast, we've got a few other podcasts to come in the next couple of weeks as we go into the off-season. Simon's going to go down to Hareth to see the 2022 test with all of the manufacturers and who actually is going to be able to ride. I hope you got some good access, but as always, he will know the goss on the ground. Keep in touch with the-race.com. Our website goes from strength to strength with all the very latest Formula One and MotoGP news and other podcasts. The latest Formula One podcast covering the Brazilian Grand Prix and Lewis Hamilton's victories. And yet there are still three races to go in what is looking to be one of the most exciting Formula One seasons for decades, never mind years. We'll be back with some more MotoGP podcasts soon. But in the meantime, from Valentin Harunchi, Simon Patterson and myself, Toby Moody, it's goodbye for now and we will speak to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>